section one of a history of our own times from the accession of queen victoria to the general election of eighteen eighty volume four this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by pamela nagami a history of our own times from the accession of queen victoria to the general election of eighteen eighty volume four by justin mccarthy chapter forty eight the new government part one lord russell was invited by the queen to form a government after the death of lord palmerston for a few days a certain amount of doubt and speculation prevailed in london and the country generally it was thought not impossible that owing to his advanced years lord russell might prove unwilling to take on him the burden of such an office as that of prime minister the name of lord clarendon was suggested by many as that of a probable head of the new administration some talked of lord granville others had a strong conviction that mr gladstone would himself be invited to take that commanding position in name which he must have in fact even when it became certain that lord russell was to be the prime minister speculation busied itself as to the possible changes in the administration many persuaded themselves that the opportunity would be taken to make some bold and sweeping changes and to admit the radical element to an influence in the actual councils of the nation such as it had never enjoyed before and such as its undoubted strength in parliament and the country now entitled it to have according to some rumours mr bright was to become secretary for india in the new cabinet according to others the great free trade orator was to hold the office of president of the board of trade which had once been offered to his friend mr cobden and mr mill was to be made secretary for india it was soon found however that no such novelties were to be announced the only changes in the cabinet were that lord russell became prime minister and that lord clarendon who had been chancellor of the duchy of lancaster succeeded him as foreign secretary one or two new men were brought into offices which did not give a seat in the cabinet among these were mr forster who became under-secretary for the colonies in the room of mr chichester fortescue now irish secretary and mr goshen who succeeded mr hutt as vice-president of the board of trade both mr forster and mr goshen soon afterwards came to hold high official position and to have seats in the cabinet in each instance the appointment was a concession to the growing liberal feeling of the day but the concession was slight and cautious the country knew little about either mr forster or mr goshen at the time and it will easily be imagined that those who thought a seat in the cabinet for mr bright was due to the people more even than to the man and who had some hopes of seeing a similar place offered to mr mill were not satisfied by the arrangement which called two comparatively obscure men to unimportant office the outer public did not quite appreciate the difficulties which a liberal minister had to encounter in compromising between the whigs and the radicals the whigs included almost all the members of the party who were really influential by virtue of hereditary rank and noble station it was impossible to overlook their claims in a country like england one must pay attention to the wishes of the dukes there is a superstition about it 
the man who attempted to form a liberal cabinet without consulting the wishes of the dukes would be as imprudent as the greek commander who in the days of xenophon would venture on a campaign without consulting the auguries but it was not only a superstition which required the liberal prime minister to show deference to the claims of the titled and stately whigs the great whig names were a portion of the traditions of the party more than that it was certain that whenever the liberal party got into difficulties it would look to the great whig houses to help it out many liberals began to speak with more or less contempt of the whigs they talked of these shadows of a mighty name as thackeray's barnes newcombe talks of the senior members of his family his uncle more particularly but when the liberal party fell into disorganization and difficulty some years after the influence of the great whig houses was sought for at once in order to bring about an improved condition of things liberalism often turns to the whigs as a young scapegrace to his father or his guardian the wild youth will have his own way when things are going smooth when credit is still good and family affection is not particularly necessary to his comfort he is even ready enough to smile at old-fashioned ways and antiquated counsels but when the hour of pressure comes when obligations have to be met at last and the gay bachelor lodgings with the fanciful furniture and the other expensive luxuries have to be given up then he comes without hesitation to the elder and assumes as a matter of course that his debts are to be paid and his affairs put in order lord russell had to pay some deference to the authority of the great whig houses some of them probably looked with alarm enough at the one serious change brought about by the death of lord palmerston the change which made mr gladstone leader of the house of commons meanwhile there were some changes in the actual condition of things which did not depend on the mere alteration of a cabinet the political complexion of the day was likely to be affected in its colour by some of these changes the house of commons elected just before lord palmerston's death was in many respects a very different house from that which it had been his last ministerial act to dissolve we have already mentioned some of the changes that death made palmerston was gone and cobden sir george lewis and sidney herbert and sir james graham there were changes too not brought about by death the lord john russell of the reform bill had been made a peer and sat as earl russell in the house of lords mr lowe one of the ablest and keenest of political critics who had for a while been shut down under the responsibilities of office was a freelance once more mr lowe who had before that held office two or three times was vice-president of the committee of council on education from the beginning of lord palmerston's administration until april eighteen sixty four at that time a vote of censure was carried against his department in other words against himself on the motion of lord robert cecil for alleged mutilation of the reports of the inspectors of schools done as it was urged in order to bring the reports into seeming harmony with the educational views entertained by the committee of council lord robert cecil introduced the resolution in a speech singularly bitter and offensive the motion was carried by a majority of one hundred and one to ninety-three mr lowe instantly resigned his office but he did not allow the matter to rest there 
he obtained the appointment of a committee to inquire into the whole subject and the result of the inquiry was not only that mr lowe was entirely exonerated from the charge made against him but that the resolution of the house of commons was actually rescinded it is probable however that mr lowe felt that the government of which he was a member had not given him all the support he might have expected it is certain that if lord palmerston and his leading colleagues had thrown any great energy into their support of him the vote of censure never could have been carried and would not have had to be rescinded this fact was brought back to the memory of many not long after when mr lowe still an outsider became the very coriolanus of a sudden movement against the reform policy of a liberal government the vigil of him who treasures up a wrong if we suppose mr lowe to have had any such feeling had not to be very long or patient in this instance on the other hand mr layard once a daring and somewhat reckless opponent of government and governments a very draw cancer of political debate a swashbuckler and soldado of parliamentary conflict had been bound over to the peace quietly enmeshed in the discipline of subordinate office not michael Perez himself the copper captain of beaumont and fletcher underwent a more remarkable and sudden change when the strong-willed estefania once had him fast in wedlock than many a bold and dashing freelance submits to when he has consented to put himself into the comfortable bondsmanship of subordinate office mr layard was therefore now to be regarded as one subdued in purpose he seemed what byron called an extinct volcano a happy phrase more lately adopted by lord beaconsfield yet the volcanic fire was not wholly gone it flared up again on opportunity given perhaps mr layard proved more formidable to his own colleagues when he sometimes had to come into the ring to sustain their common cause the old vigour of the professional gladiator occasionally drove him a little too heedlessly against the opposition so combative a temperament found it hard to submit itself always to the prosaic rigour of mere fact and the proprieties of official decorum the change in the leadership of the house of commons was of course the most remarkable and the most momentous of the alterations that had taken place from lord palmerston admired almost to hero-worship by whigs and conservatives the foremost position had suddenly passed to mr gladstone whose admirers were the most extreme of the liberals and who was distrusted and dreaded by all of conservative instincts and sympathies on the one side of the house as well as on the other mr gladstone and mr disraeli were now brought directly face to face one led the house the other led the opposition with so many points of difference and even of contrast there was one slight resemblance in the political situation of mr gladstone and mr disraeli each was looked on with a certain dread and doubt by considerable number of his own followers it is evident that in such a state of things the strategical advantage lay with the leader of the opposition he had not to take the initiative in anything and the least loyal of his followers would cordially serve under him in any effort to thwart a movement made by the ministry the conservatives naturally have always proved the more docile and easily disciplined party of late years their policy has necessarily been of a negative character a policy of resistance or of delay 
there is less opportunity for difference of opinion in a party acting with such a purpose than in one of which the principle is to keep pace with changing times and conditions it came to be seen however before long that the conservative leader was able to persuade his party to accept those very changes against which some of the followers of mr gladstone were found ready to revolt in order that some of the events to follow may not appear very mysterious it is well to bear in mind that the formation of the new ministry under lord russell had by no means given all the satisfaction to certain sections of the liberal party which they believed themselves entitled to expect some were displeased because the new government was not radical enough some were alarmed because they fancied it was likely to go too far for the purpose of pleasing the radicals some were vexed because men whom they looked up to as their natural leaders had not been invited to office a few were annoyed because their own personal claims had been overlooked one thing was certain the government must make a distinct move of some kind in the direction of reform so many new and energetic liberals and radicals had entered the house of commons now that it would be impossible for any liberal government to hold office on the terms which had of late been conceded to lord palmerston mr gladstone had always been credited with a sensitive earnestness of temper which was commonly believed to have given trouble to his more worldly and easy-going colleagues in the cabinet of lord palmerston he had what condorcet has happily called an impatient spirit it was to many people a problem of deep interest to see whether the genius of mr gladstone would prove equal to the trying task of leadership under circumstances of such peculiar difficulty tact according to many was the quality needed for the work not genius some new men were coming up on both sides of the political field they were needed many conspicuous figures during former years of debate would be missed when the new parliament came to meet among the new men we have already mentioned mr forster who had taken a conspicuous part in the debates on the american civil war mr forster was a man of considerable parliamentary aptitude a debater who though not pretending to eloquence was argumentative vigorous and persuasive he had practical knowledge of english politics and social affairs and was thoroughly representative of a very solid body of english public opinion in the house of lords the duke of argyle was beginning to take a prominent and even a leading place the duke of argyle was still looked upon as a young man in politics nothing can be more curious than the manner in which the landmarks of youth and age have of late years been rearranged in our political life what would be regarded as approaching to middle age in ordinary society is now held to be little better than unfledged youth in parliamentary life it is doubtful whether any advantages of family influence or personal capacity could in our day enable men to lead a house or a party at the age when pitt and fox were accepted political chiefs human life should indeed have stretched out almost to what are called patriarchal limits in order to give a political leader now an opportunity of enjoying a fairly proportionate tenure of leadership the duke of argyle would have passed as a middle-aged man in ordinary life but he was looked on by many as a sort of boy in politics he had indeed begun life very soon at this time he was some forty-three years of age 
and he had been a prominent public man for more than twenty years lord houghton in proposing his health at a public dinner some years ago said good-humouredly that the duke was only seventeen years old he was in fact nineteen when he wrote a pamphlet called advice to the peers and he has gone on advising us ever since pursuing the career of his friend lord houghton went on to say that soon after he got mixed up with ecclesiastical affairs and was excommunicated the ecclesiastical controversy in which the duke of argyle engaged so early was the famous struggle concerning the freedom of the church of scotland which resulted in the great secession headed by dr chalmers and the foundation of the free church into this controversy the duke of argyle then marquis of lorne rushed with all the energy of scottish youth but in it he maintained himself with a good deal of the proverbial scottish caution dr chalmers welcomed the young controversialist as an able and important adherent but the marquis of lorne was not prepared to follow the great divine orator into actual secession the heirs to dukedoms in great britain seldom go very far in the way of descent the marquis declined to accept the doctrine of chalmers that lay patronage and the spiritual independence of the church were like oil and water immiscible the free church movement went on and the young marquis drew back he subsequently vindicated his course and reviewed the whole question in an essay on the ecclesiastical history of scotland meanwhile the young controversialist had become the duke of argyle on the death of his father in eighteen forty seven he did battle in the house of lords as he had done out of it he distinguished himself by plunging almost instantaneously into the thick of debate he very much astonished the staid and formal peers who had been accustomed to discussion conducted in measured tones and with awful show of deference to age and political standing the duke of argyle spoke upon any and every subject with astonishing fluency and without the slightest reverence for years and authority the general impression of the house of lords for a long time was that youthful audacity and nothing else was the chief characteristic of the duke of argyle and for a long time the duke of argyle did a good deal to support that impression he had the temerity before he had been very long in the house to make a sharp personal attack upon lord derby the peers were as much astonished as the spectators round the tilt-yard in ivanhoe when they saw the strange young knight strike with his lance's point the shield of the formidable templar lord derby himself was at first almost bewildered by the unexpected vehemence of his inexperienced opponent but he soon made up his mind and bore down upon the duke of argyle with all the force of scornful invective which he could summon to his aid for the hour the duke of argyle was as completely overthrown as if he had got in the way of a charge of cavalry he was in a metaphorical sense left dead on the field elderly peers smiled gravely shook their heads said they knew how it would be and congratulated themselves that there was an end of the audacious young debater but they were quite mistaken the duke of argyle knew of course that he had been soundly beaten but he did not care he got up again and went on just as if nothing had happened his courage was not broken his self-confidence moulted no feather after a while he began to show that there was in him more than self-confidence 
the house of lords found that he really knew a great deal and had a wonderfully clear head and they learned to endure his dogmatic and professorial ways but he never grew to be popular amongst them his style was far too self-assured his faith in his own superiority to everybody else was too evident to allow of his having many enthusiastic admirers he soon however got into high office with his rank his talents and his energy such a thing was inevitable he joined the government of lord aberdeen in eighteen fifty two as lord privy seal holding an office of dignity but no special duties the occupant of which has only to give his assistance in counsel and general debate he was afterwards postmaster-general for two or three years under lord palmerston in eighteen fifty nine he became lord privy seal again and he retained that office in the cabinet of lord russell End of section one